Good morning. Happy Friday. It is Friday in the M. You know, the day we all been sort of hanging our hats for, <laughs> waiting for, hoping for, praying for, because it gets us into the weekend. As far as I'm concerned, every day is a weekend for me. I don't feel like uh, I got to get to Friday, uh, but I get it because sometimes Friday just feels Friday. And, you know, tomorrow morning, you know, whatever your commitment is, is not going to be work. So happy Friday. I'm drinking my lemon water with chia seeds. I like these little chia seeds. They're like, they're like slimy and then crunchy. But I'm going to see what they, I'm a, I'm, I've got bags of it. So, uh, so I'm just going to start drinking them because to my health. Mm. A couple of things. Uh, is Twitter still up? <laughs> I was listening to uh, Jose Antonio on his show this morning earlier because his show comes on before my show. So I think they start from seven to nine or something. So anyway, he was talking about Twitter. And, you know, Twitter right now is on fire. Is it even still up? So I guess Elon Musk, in all his foolishness. Uh, let me tell you about, let me tell you why I have a problem with Elon Musk because people equate wealth with genius, no matter how that wealth was gotten. He is not a genius. <laughs> He's just not a genius. So let's dispel that foolishness. And I don't really think he knows what he is doing, but all right, You've got that kind of money to play around and you mess with people's livelihoods. All right. So, so, so he issued this ultimatum, I guess. You better come back, bring your asses back to work right damn now. And people are like, mm, I don't think so. <laughs> I know he can't run Twitter. So I, I listen, I look, I check my Twitter feed. I'm, I'm just checking everybody's comments and, and people are just going on about their business. <laughs> Meanwhile, the mass resignations ensues. I, I just don't know. So uh, we'll see. Maybe it falls down this weekend. In the meantime, we'll be just on other platforms. You know, we'll be on other platforms. I'm with uh, I'm with Ida Bay Wells. Uh this is what happens in a capitalist society that equates wealth, no matter how unearned or ill-gotten, with genius. Welp. <laughs> and if y'all don't know who Ida, Ida Bay Wells is, God help you. I'm, I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not, it's Hannah Jones. So if you if you don't know who Ida Bay Wells is, um, then you don't you don't spend much time on social media. <laughs> And it, 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 it will be of no consequence to you. So anyway, so we'll see what happens, people. It's fires all over the place. Just fires. I see that nitwit Trump. <laughs> and, and, I, and I mean nitwit in the kindest possible way. <laughs> he, he did file his papers. He is running. But guess what? Ain't nobody buying. Ain't nobody barking. Ain't nobody jumping. This is gonna, I mean, you think he lost to Biden the first time. <laughs> It's going to be a walk in the park. The crowds are smaller. No one cares. The Republican Party is trying to figure out a way how to undo this. <laughs> a bunch of simple heads. 
all you Trump supporters and, and Trump adjacent supporters, I'm going to pray for y'all because y'all don't know what y'all doing. You don't think about things. You just are foolish and it's just not good for the country. You know, we know, we all know it. I mean, Donald Trump is a washed up carnival barker and, uh, and a liar and a cheat. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I just, I, I, and, and people are so gullible. I've never seen so many gullible people in all my life. I just, I don't get it. And then, and their, and their favorite thing to say is, oh, but that Hunter Biden computer <laughs> laptop, whatever the hell they whining about. I was like, yeah, but, but Hunter Biden is not elected to office. He not elected to nothing. <laughs> and Hunter Biden's laptop does not fix anything. <laughs> Is that your plan? Oh my God, these Republicans are just sad. That's not going to fix a damn thing. And if you think, and, and I know you do think this, that the majority of the people are just gullible, because I know you like them stupid like that. And, and because you like them stupid, they're malleable. I get it. History shows this. That when, when, when you have a population, you dumb down a population, you give them a steady diet of stupidity, guess what happens? They become stupid. Now, a lot of these Trump supporters are already shown, shown up stupid. I mean, they just show up stupid. And they, and they make the most ridiculous claims and thoughts. And, and we're all just sitting around like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Where did y'all go to school? What? What? <laughs> I just, I just, I, it's, it's dangerous and hilarious at the same time. It is all dangerous and hilarious at the same time. You know, um, uh, I see, I watched Nancy Pelosi said she's not going to run for the next, for, uh, for leadership in this next uh, Congress. And, and I think, you know, having her husband uh, beat with a hammer, it, it, it take a toll on you. And, you know, you don't want to, you just don't want to be in that. I mean, that's enough. It's enough. It's enough. And she she has earned her place in history. She has done some amazing things. She has championed things. She has literally broken the glass ceiling and opened the door for other women to sort of seek uh, democratic leadership. So high five, uh, Mrs. Pelosi. You have done a fine, 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 fine job. Um, and you have respected that office uh, with a great deal of care and uh and commitment and and uh and that's that's an amazing thing so high five i don't know what they're doing on the on the republican side i guess mitch mcconnell was out <laughs> they're gonna run you mcconnell they're gonna run you out of town so they can put all those right wingers in there all the crazy people that can't govern to save their life i i just don't know i just don't know God help us all. So, yeah. I, I'll see what they do, but I don't believe what they say. <laughs> I, I just find it all hilarious. <laughs> the dumb, the dumb and dumber. <laughs> dumber and dumber part two. And poor Mike Pence. Boy, you're not going to be president. You're not going to be president. Nobody's going to back a guy who can't even stand up for himself. You can't even stand up for yourself. 
You let that, you let that guy, Trump, who <laughs> ain't never fought nobody. Don't all, just got a big mouth. Just all he has is a big mouth, but that's what bullies do, though. All bullies just have a big mouth. They can't really do nothing, but they make you think that they could do something. So, you know, the fact that he sent the minions after you <laughs> and then goes days without checking on you. Shoot. I don't know why you didn't march into that Oval Office and like put him up. <laughs> People would have had more respect for you if you did that. Right now, you just look like I don't know what you look like. Like, oh, I, I'm gonna act like I don't. I'm gonna act like I don't know him, or I, you know, I mean, you're just not anything anybody would want in a president. You don't. You come across as somebody with no backbone. You come across as somebody who 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 is just too stiff and too out of touch to be president. I mean, I, Donald Trump is not going to be the next president. I mean, just it's just it's just not going to happen. I mean, people have waking up, are waking up, are woken up all over the country, all over the world. And uh, the American public was asleep at the wheel when this fool came into office. And I dare say, I don't think we'll be asleep again. I don't think anybody thinks that having Trump in office is a good idea, except the that one percent. <laughs> and even they, I think, is like, mm, this is a hard one one percent. <laughs> do I take do I take the do I take the breaks and be associated with the stupid, or do I <laughs> I go in a different direction? So we'll see. You know, I we'll see. I, 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 those Republicans, they need a, they need a come to Jesus moment and, and, and not in the way that they've been coming to Jesus with no sense of Jesus. They need to get to the, get to the bottom of their party and, you know, um, denounce white supremacy. And I mean, they just got a lot of denouncing to do. <laughs> they just have a lot to do, you know, when the whole party is, is, is a white supremacist organization. There's a lot to do. So, oh, sorry. Uh, anyway, I'm just saying. Let me move my class books. Last night we had a. Last night was my class on race and law out of uh, Ohio, which I I enjoy so much. Um, taught by uh, Dr. Cardona Jones. She's an attorney, a lawyer. And uh, she teaches a great class. And I enjoyed it last night. Last night was all on uh, about education. And because it's in Ohio, you know, we use uh, at, we use Ohio data, public school information. Last night was on education. Um, so we because the school is in Ohio, um, it's centered on, uh, on Ohio issues, uh, which don't look different than Connecticut issues. Uh, you know, they, they are grappling with, uh, uh, paying for education through property taxes, just like we are. So that seems to be across this country, trying to figure out how to fund education and not on the backs of home ownership or property ownership. So, uh, so anyway, we were talking about that and and the, you know the segregation and desegregation of schools and and what that looked like, and um, they reference reference. Chef versus O'Neill, which I know something about because I live in Connecticut. Uh, and we talked about that a little bit. Um, so 
Uh, we talked about charter schools. We talked about uh, uh, how schools white flight from communities and um, uh, separate and equal, separate and unequal. Uh, we talked about the uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. What that what might that look like? Uh, what was what was the intent? What was the intentions? So it was a good night. It was a good conversation. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. Um, you know, this class, I mean, she does not play around. She she mixes it up pretty good and gets right to the heart of things, particularly around racism and white supremacy and redlining. So I've I've learned a great deal. I mean, I knew a lot, but the 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 depth of what I knew um has expanded just because of this class so so i've been enjoying it so so much um so that was last night and then uh i met some folks over at the canon to have a conversation about um uh nonprofits and board building and and that was a good conversation that was a rich conversation it was funny and um glad to help glad to act as an advisor um uh, to do my part um, you know, I'm like Liam Neeson. I have a I have a particular set of skills that might be useful. <laughs> I, have a, I have a particular set of skills, <laughs> and, and I do so. Uh, so yeah, so that was that was quite helpful um, last night. And then uh, when I get off air today, I pack my bags and run up to Providence for uh, the Planned Parenthood of Southern New England um, annual meeting. Uh, because Planned Parenthood of Southern New England makes up Connecticut and Rhode Island. And so since Rhode Island has always come to Connecticut, we are going to Rhode Island, which is really nice. So uh, so we're having dinner tonight as a group, and then we get into it tomorrow. Um, and then come on back home tomorrow evening sometime or other. And uh, and just, you know, whatever. The Jamaican-American Connection thank Friendsgiving uh, is Sunday. So I'm going to I'm going to do that. Um, James Foreman is having his uh, uh, letter writing campaign for Georgia on Sunday. So I'm going to go to that uh, because there's a, a runoff and I want to lend my support to uh, Reverend Warnock because to abide Herschel Walker in that role would just my head would just fall off. <laughs> I just I, I just. The fact that he is even this far, and you know, this is this is the foolishness with white folks, and and some black people, lots of black people too, some black people. This is the foolishness that this that they would imagine that this man is qualified to be anything other than what he is in this moment. It's just astounding to me, and 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 I know why they like him. They like him because he represents what they believe black is and and that's that's heartbreaking to me you know that he is not the best and the brightest among us he is not he is not any of that and and god bless him but he is not the best and brightest of georgia he's not even from georgia like he does he he moved from from where he was to georgia to run in this race and listen we saw Mehmet Oz do that foolishness. I don't know who thought Mehmet Oz would be good for anybody. And I know all those folks. <laughs> I, he's just, 
everybody's just problematic and and disingenuous and and I I just put this at the Republican. They don't care about nothing or nobody, and it shows. And nothing in their history speaks to that. That says we got your best interest. Nothing. Nothing in the Republican history says I got your best interest at heart. Nothing. Nothing. So I I don't know how people I don't know how people go along with this foolishness, and uh, and I just look at it. And I, I really don't have these conversations with people about their their beliefs. Um, so I could be on my own platform and say what I want, and I don't have to have rebuttal or or convince people to think critically or think mindfully. I don't I don't have to engage in that level of stupidity at all, and, and I don't. So, you know, and I don't really care what people think of my opinions. These are mine and I get to have them. And I, I'm not arguing with nobody. <laughs> I'm not. So there's that. Um, listen, I, you know, it's, it's always the people who, who, who don't hold office and who ain't never ran for office and, you know, who do all the barking about this and that and the other thing. It's like, get in the trenches, get in the trenches and then see what these people do. And then have a conversation. <laughs> get in the trench, but you got to get in the trenches first. You cannot armchair. You cannot sit at the house and be like this, and that, and the other thing. If you're not out there, if you're not out there in the trenches making a difference, then what are you doing? So, and everybody's not going to do that. Everybody's going to, everybody's going to think that they're doing something in their own kind of way. But if it is, if it, this, this is where I am. And I said this the other night in a, in a meeting, I was somewhere and I said, um, if you are not, as far as I'm concerned, if you are not about dismantling white supremacy, then I, we're not going to have a conversation. I, I, first of all, I don't talk, talk race stuff with white people. I don't. Not unless you are well-read and well-traveled. That's it. If you're not any of those things, I'm not having a conversation with you. I'm not suggesting you shouldn't have a conversation with other people. I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't have a conversation at all. I'm suggesting what I'm saying to you is that you're not going to have a conversation with me, me, if you are not well-read or well-traveled. I'm just, that's just my own level of, of engagement. I just don't, I don't have conversations with white people about race. If I don't know you, and I don't know what you're made of, and I don't know what you're reading, and I don't—I I just don't do it. And the, and the few white folks that I do have race conversations with, I know who they are, I know where they come from, I know what they read, I know that they are about it. I don't—I don't get into those conversations with white everyday ordinary white folks walking the street with an opinion. I, okay, have your opinion. That's it. You're not going to have it with me though. You can have all the conversation you want. There's lots of black people who will engage you at that level. Lots and lots who will stand there and back and forth you all day and make their points and, you know, balance, point, check, mate, all that. Not me. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. So I'm not saying that people shouldn't do it. I'm saying Babs Rolls Ivy is not doing it. That's it. That's where I'm at. I'm not having conversations with race with people who I think are stupid <laughs> and ignorant and don't know nothing about their feelings. 
and their feelings are suspect? <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, I feel like, I feel like, okay. I feel like busted loose. Busted loose. <laughs> I feel like busted loose. Busted loose. That's, that's, that's where I'm at. So I don't, I don't engage those conversations. And that's been my stance for the last, I don't know, 20 years since I, since I was a young, younger woman. Uh, because it, it, it bodes, it does not bode well. And uh, it doesn't bode well and it doesn't move the dialogue because I think what moves the, what moves the dialogue is like-minded is people who are open and willing to read and understand and know something about history of not only just this country um, and all the peoples of this country, but the world. And when you are not well-traveled or well-read, you come from, you, you have a very sort of limited view of things. You have a very limited view. Um, if, you, if you've never gone outside, if you've only limited yourself to Connecticut or whatever, if you, I've been in every state in this country except Hawaii and Alaska and, uh, and, and, and uh, oh, I think that's it. And, and, and you have to see this country to understand what this country is up against. America, the United States of America is huge. It's vast and wide. And the people in it are vast and wide. You know, and and everybody is 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 fighting for their piece of whatever it is they think they're fighting for. You know, every everybody is is trying to make a way based on what they believe, what they've experienced um, and who their neighbors are and all that kind of stuff. Um, And and lots of misinformation, lots, lots of mis misconceptions, lot, lots of lots of those kinds of things that color people's uh, opinions. Do you know what I mean? So, um, and so, so I, I, I just don't, I just don't, there's no point for me, for me to have conversations. I, I'm not in the enlightening business. I, I'm not here. I don't try to enlighten anybody about anything. Uh, I think that's the work that people ought to do. Like, I think one of the best things that we have in this country is public libraries. I mean, they're just amazing places to go and discover and learn and grow and and become, you know, and and reinvention. You can reinvent your mind. You can change your mind simply by going to the library and and delving into uh, all kinds of books that sort of will help shape you moving forward. Uh, but if you're not willing to do that kind of stuff at that level, if you just want to just be stupid and ridiculous and, and I know, and I know calling people stupid is insulting. And I'm, I mean it to be that way. I mean it to be that way because some of that stuff is uh, the majority of that stuff, that level of stupidity is deliberate. It is deliberate and it's hard to it's hard to have conversations with people who are deliberately stupid and deliberately ignorant. I, I don't know what you do with that. There's no, there's no, unless they have some kind of out of body experience, you're not going to, it's, it's, it's very hard to change, change them. And I, I don't know how you do that. So I, I don't, 
I don't see that in my will house to try. I, I think, I think, I think the best thing that I could say is this is why I like um, art and theater uh, 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 so much because art has a transformative power. When you see someone's story um, on portrayed or produced uh, or a story of a people or any people or a, a slice of people that you don't know or you would never come in contact with, if you see it, you start to see the similarities in what they're saying and what they're doing and how it looks in your own life. Do you know what I mean? And that's what I like about the transformative power of theater, that it has the ability to sort of reflect back to us different experiences of people that we may not ever get to be involved with or know, but we could hear their story. You know, I mean, I think when you when you go see Shakespeare in a park or on the stage, you know, four or five hundred years, thousands of years ago, you know, he's telling he's telling these these stories that still resonate because the human condition is 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 a shared experience of all of us. So when you get William Shakespeare and you come come forward, I mean, there's so many playwrights out there um, to modern day. You know, you Lorraine Hansberry, A Raisin in the Sun. Um, you know, that play is 50 years old. And, and it still resonates. Like, it, if you've not seen A Raisin, and I, you know, I, I'm starting to just hate it. But now um, it, it still resonates. It still resonates um, with, with what's happening today. And and the and the and the the level of poverty, the redlining, f family uh, tensions. Uh, it has an abortion component to it. I mean, that's that's right now. So, so theater has a way to be transforming, um, and um, and the more you see theater the more expansive your brain becomes and the more the world becomes uh, a much more interesting place because you get to see it play out for two hours on a stage somewhere in company of other people having the same experience, um, but picking out different things that, that speak to them because of, because they're watching this thing in community. So so I, I think our art can transform the stupid and the ignorant into less stupid and less ignorant on a lot of levels. Um, and, and I think theater is a, is a wonderful tool for that because you just don't know what you don't know until you see it. And you're like, wow, they struggle with that too. Wow. You know, or uh, I watched this play and I saw the dynamics about my parents, or I watched this play and I saw the dynamics of what's happening in my neighborhood, in my community. I watched this play and, and it got me thinking about when I was, you know, a child or all those things that theater can do um, and, and bring out. 
you know, I'm not even going to invite people to go see artwork, but I, I would invite people to see artwork, to go and see what art is and, and how expansive. And it's not about like or dislike. It's let me think about this before I say I don't like it. And some things you just know off the bat. Oh, I just I just don't like that. I, I don't want to think about it. But that's not every piece of art, right? That's a finite, small amount of art. For the most part, people are fascinated by what they see. And they they want to look at it. And they want to look at it some more. And they, and they find themselves thinking about it. And they find themselves, um, well, let me, what does the artist intend for me to see here? What is this artist saying? What, what should I get from this? What do I get from this? What is welling up in me about this particular piece of work? You know, what am I feeling? Can I connect to that feeling? What, what am I experiencing when I look at this? Right? Because that's what art should do. It should give you opportunity to sort of to check in and to check out, you know, to check out work, but to check in how it affects you, how it affects you and affects you. That's, that's, that's why I like art so much. Because for me, art can be the great equalizer for many, many things, for many, many things, particularly if people don't have uh, words or they, they're nervous about their articulation of a thing or, um, or, or, or this is just a new experience and they don't know how to frame that. And they don't know <coughs> how to how to step into the intellectual changes that are happening when they are looking at or experiencing an art, you know, so. So that's why I, I like art on a lot of fronts and music and dance and, you know, art in all its forms, <laughs> you know, and I get, you know, every now and again, you get some provocative art that gets everybody all crazy and like, oh my God, is that art? That's not art. And I think that's what it's supposed to do. Provocative art is supposed to be provocative and it's supposed to you know, love it, hate it, whatever. And and there's a there's art out there that I just I don't I'm not going to say I understand it. You know, and sometimes I don't think you're supposed to understand it. I think you're just supposed to experience it and then tinker with it over time. You know, remember that you saw it or stand with it and like, I don't understand this. And be all right with not understanding it. Like I don't I don't get this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't get this. I don't I don't know what this is. All right, but I'm looking at it and I'm you know, I'm frowning and I'm like, "Oh, oh." But that's but that's part of it, right? Like that's 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 part of freedom and liberation to sort of like have your own thoughts about a thing and say, "Oh, I don't know what this is. I'm glad I saw it. Or maybe I'm not glad I saw it." But it, it has given me an experience, you know, you know, so, so I'm, I like art for that reason. I think this is why I, 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 I am in art serving organizations because I love, I love the story. 
I, I love the story of the story of the story. I love that, you know, and, and I want to be in the center, in the mix of that, you know, I want to have access and I want to be in front of it and behind it and around it. That's why I like artists so much because they think about things in very revolutionary ways um, that excites me. And I, and I say this everywhere I go, particularly when I'm on somebody's stage. I always say that artists are the real revolutionaries because they give voice and tone to what we are feeling in the moment, in the moment, in the moment. So when you look at these art pieces, particularly in galleries, and you look at the time frame and when something was made, that they were making art for that time. Like whatever was happening in that time, it you you can now start to frame out, okay, now I see. So if this was made in 1977, what was happening in 1977? That could have been influencing this artist. That's how, that's how I love the expansion of art and creativity, because now you get to just figure out ways to think about this that, that transports you forward, backwards, up, down. I love it. I love it. I think that's why I have art in my house. I like, I mean, there's pieces that I love, 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 you know, um, because they mean something to me. Uh, they may not mean something to anybody else, uh, but it means something to me. Like the my 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 then husband gave me a beautiful Charles Bibb limited edition print for my birthday. Now I've had this thing 20 some odd years now, right? And it's still my most favorite piece. And I have subsequent pieces of Charles Bibbs that we have bought together over the years. Um, and then so when we we got divorced, uh, I think he only took maybe one Charles Bibb piece out of the bunch that we had. Uh, and if you don't know Charles Bibbs, you just you got it's a very black thing. Go look it up. Um, but uh, I, I, I we've bought Charles Bibbs pieces for the children. Uh, my sorority sisters, we all have Charles Bibbs and fraternity brothers. I mean, all of us, like lots of black folks have a lot of Charles Bibbs. And I remember hearing Charles Bibbs speaks about, speak about, he does art for black people and it's black people that buy his art. Now white people buy his art too. That, that I, I'm sure if I go into some woke white folks house, there'll be some Charles Bibbs hanging around. I, I know it, but he likes to say that black people he attributes black people buying power to his success for as long as he's been successful. You can go to his website and I'm sure there's some new pieces. I'm not going to his website because if I see a piece, I'm a want it and I can't buy a damn thing right now. <laughs> so, uh, so I've been spending my time looking at local artists and figuring out how to buy pieces from local artists, you know, like a Kim Weston, um, 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 uh, like a, like, like a Susan, um, uh, 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 who, who I can't touch, but she's not out of, she's not out of reach on some things. Like I, I saw, you know, um, I saw the, uh, uh the exhibit at the Ely Center curated by, um, uh, uh, what is her name? Beautiful sister. Um, God, I can't stand when I can't remember people's names. Um, and uh, Susan Clinard had a piece up. I mean, she has a bunch of pieces up in, throughout the gallery. And uh, 
but she had this one piece up on the second floor that was a uh, James Baldwin piece. And I thought, oh, I love this piece. I love it. And uh, I want this piece. But, you know, it's it's out of my price point at the moment. But but it's not out of the price point forever, right? Shonda. Shonda Holloway curated um, the Aquaba uh, uh, exhibition um, for the Ely Center, which is up on the second floor. It's lovely, lovely, lovely pieces that she has done. She has created. Um, and I and I don't have any of her work. And uh, and once I get past this law school stuff, uh, or when I get a little more settled into it, uh, I'm gonna figure out how to buy a piece of Shonda's work. And then, uh, but I but that Susan Klinner piece with James Baldwin moved me, and I was like, and this is twelve, it's twelve hundred. I think it was twelve hundred dollars, and that's that's a nice, that's a comfortable price point. Like I I could I can't pay that, but it's comfortable enough where I could think about figuring out how to save money. And buy it, you know, over if I, you know, put enough money down over a period of time, I could, I could have it, right? Like it's that I like, I like, I like that I can, I, that that you know, she's world class. I mean, she she is a world class sculptor, and her work is beautiful, and uh, a lot of it is, I mean, it's going to be out of reach. Uh, same with Kim Weston, her work is stunning, beautiful photography of indigenous people, stunning. We have a whole installation up at the Arts Council, uh, but I mean, uh, I, I and and the pieces are huge. You know, there's a piece that I, a couple of pieces I dig. They, you know, they started twenty five hundred dollars, which is not outrageous. It's just not. But I don't have twenty five hundred dollars to 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 put down. But what you did say was, well, you don't have to buy this big giant piece. You know, I, I can do, I have smaller pieces. <laughs> I was like, oh, so yeah. So, so that got me thinking about, you know, we have so much good local talent here that I, I want some of it. <laughs> I, I want some of it. <laughs> I, want, I want some of it. So, so, uh, so if I could ever get my, my storage apartment slash dorm, uh, into a better shape, then I could really uh, hang hang the existing art that I so adore, and get more art. <laughs> that's that's what I want. Oh, to be rich, to be rich, 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 rich. So, so that is my that's my my art my art thought. So I don't, I don't went from politics to art, <laughs> but you know, really the, the, really the point is, is that there's so many ways that we can grow ourselves and extend ourselves to one another and to tap into each other's humanity first. Um, and art is a way to sort of do that. Uh, I was watching the news this morning about that young sister who went to Mexico with some friends and within 24 hours of being there um, ended up dead. And, and these jokers came back without her body and told some cockamamie story about what happened or whatever, but they left her. Like they didn't stay to help figure out because they killed her. And there was a video of her being beaten up by some chick in the hotel room and uh, 
oof, it was just, uh, it, it was just, and now I've not watched the video. They just so I'm not, and I'm not going to go watch the video, uh, but they just showed a snippet of it uh, on the news. And, uh, and she's a beautiful young sister. And there was a brother in the room who was capturing this, but he didn't intervene. You know, I, honestly, everybody that had touched that was in that ought to go to hell to jail. Seriously, I, that kind of heinous disregard for human life is sickening to me. Like that is a level of sickness uh, that can't be allowed to roam the streets ever, you know, cause that, that's, you know, that's, that makes me think that it was planned and diabolical and, you know, and, and these are your friends, like friends, I, I dare say they weren't her friends. And her poor people are just sick about all of this. And so the autopsy came back that, you know, her spine was broken, her neck was severed and, oh my God. And uh, and ultimately what they said was she was beaten to death. I don't, I don't, I don't even know how that even goes down. I, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know how that goes down. So anyway. Uh, it's just one of those things that just boggles the mind, just boggles the mind. And I'm going to tell you something. Anytime I hear of a woman, um, a missing mother, because <laughs> there's a case right now, and her husband just was arrested, a missing, a missing young mother, and, and, and she just disappears without a trace, I don't know no mother who... One day she's at the PTA doing all the things with the kids. And then the next day she disappears without her wallet, her purse, all the things, you know, I don't know. No woman who walks out the house without their purse, without all the stuff. I, I don't know a one. So my, my instinct is always, did he kill her? <laughs> that's how I'm thinking. I know that's hella biased, but. What do we see? 10 times out of 10, some disgruntled husband because he's having an affair or the finances ain't right or or whatever, whatever. He didn't want kids or he wants out and he wants to get out and keep all his stuff intact. I'm like, you do know that detectives are professional people, that they they actually solve crimes at, for a living. And that you're just an amateur and you probably acted in uh, moments of passion and they're going to figure that out and they're not going to stop. And just because you don't hear about what they're doing doesn't mean they're not on the case. And so when they knock on your door and throw you up against the wall, <laughs> they pretty much know, okay, you did it. We're going to have to figure this out. So I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I, I, I just, I just wish that people would stop killing women. That That's really, that's, that's really what I want to say. Stop killing these women. You want out your marriage, get a damn divorce, go get a high powered attorney, try to keep all your stuff and just get out the marriage to kill somebody is because your life is going to be over that you, you're going to get found out. 
and you're going to go to jail for a very long time. Uh, speaking of uh, a long time, um, there is a bank robbery, <laughs> an armed bank robbery on Martha's Vineyard yesterday. An armed bank robbery. Somebody walked into a bank. I think there's like, what, one bank on Martha's Vineyard? Walked into Mar- Mar- into the bank on Martha. Now, Martha's Vineyard is a whole island. It's an island. Island. Walked into the bank, robbed it, and then um, got on a boat <laughs> and got away, but got caught up, holed up in a hotel in Falmouth, Falmouth surrounded by cops. I, I Who thought this plan? It's hard enough to rob a bank anywhere, but you're going to do it on an island? <laughs> what are you doing? Oh my God. So I don't know how it all played out. I, I'm a, when I go on break, I'm going to check, check them in. Oh, I could check now. Um, but when I got that, that news, um, I was just really, I was like, somebody robbed the bank and then got in a boat. I think it was three people um, to get away. Like that's, this is not Hawaii five <laughs> Oh, Oh my God. So um, I don't know if they, they, but they robbed it at, at gunpoint. And uh, I don't know what the, I don't know where they are now. I know that they, they're looking for these people. Oh, they're looking for them. Oh, so they, they go to Falmouth and uh, I don't know what happens. Uh, I don't know what happens after that. So I'm going to look into that. I mean, I, I think people will, will tell us uh, what's happening. But there's a, 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 this authorities released a photo of a mass suspect after Martha's Vineyard Bank robbed and the staff was tied up. So there were three armed robbers wearing the same mask. And, you know, I was like, bank robbery is such, that's like the worst crime to commit. Because when they catch you and they will catch you, you had to go to jail for a long time and you don't get a lot of money. Right. I mean, it's not going to be worth it. I don't know much about bank robbing, but I, I can imagine you going there with a gun, even if you don't have a gun and you go with a note. It, it's still a bad scene. So. Uh, uh, so 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 they're 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 the police uh, uh, ended up at the Falmouth Falmouth. Holiday Inn, and uh, so, so they they are they're 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 gonna figure this out. It was a targeted crime, and uh, there's no that they, they don't think that the public has to be overly concerned about these people being you know hella dangerous. Um, so um, they tied up the bank staff, escaped in a stolen vehicle. Um, and then uh, no one was physically injured, and uh, the Tisbury police uh, is uh, working with the FBI. So, so the robbery took place in uh, uh, in Tisbury, which is a little town on Martha's Vineyard. So, I, I, <laughs> this is crazy. 
man, you robbing banks on Martha's Vineyard? You got to be hella desperate. That's a whole island. And you got to get in a boat and like, and it's like fall, right? So it's not like you're going to see 50 million. You can't get lost in a sea of boats. <laughs> Somebody's going to see you. <laughs> so I don't know. I'll keep you posted. I'll keep you posted, but my little Martha's Vineyard crew, you know, we've been back and forth with uh, with this information for the last couple of days because we were like, do you see this? <laughs> nope. Yep, let's see it. So I guess no place is immune. No place is immune. Um, so next week, I'll update you about the about the Marrakesh Morocco plans. I'm planning my birthday and uh, I'm so excited. And uh, I'm ready to, uh, my, a friend of mine who used to, uh, I used to live in the same neighborhood with um, is in Morocco now. And the pictures are beautiful. You know, she's taking pictures on a camel. I'm not getting on a camel. Um, but, you know, they did the hot air balloon thing, which is what I want to do at sunrise on my birthday. I think that would be so cool. Um, you know, they've showed them shopping and having tea in places and all the things. So I can't wait. I cannot wait. So that's where we are. So um, I'm going to tell you, my next guest is, uh, I'm happy to have a, uh, Sharicio, uh, Vincent, Chef Vincent. He's the new owner of the Mediterranean Contemporary Restaurant, the Luke, which, you know, the Luke sits in the Taft. It used to be all kinds of restaurants. Um, Hot Tomato, um, the Palms, uh, Roya, which I miss and love. Um, and now it's the Luke. And I had to find out why it's called the Luke. And I had to find out can vegans eat there? Can vegans eat there? I want to know. Can vegans eat at the Luke? <laughs> so uh, I'm going to be having dinner there shortly. So I make plans. I'm going to go and have dinner and uh, and uh, and see what all the 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 tea is about. <laughs> so I'm going to go uh, and and see see what it's like. So I'm excited. So he's my guest at 1015. So I want y'all to come back and, and hear about this, this brand new, uh, the restaurant, I believe it's open. It's open. Like, I think it's like quietly open. Like it didn't open to a big old parade of fanfare. It's open. So, so I'm looking forward to hearing about his, um, culinary journey and his culinary story. So, uh, chef Vincent will be on in a, in a, in, in a few minutes. And, uh, I'm delighted to talk to him. Um, Cause you know, my background is in culinary. And when I was a culinary student, none of these opportunities existed. <laughs> none. I think the biggest thing we wanted to be was like chefs on cruise ships so we could see the world <laughs> or, or fancy hotels. Right. But now uh, chefs are, uh, there's a whole network of chefs, a whole televised network of chefs um, and Personal chef became a thing. Uh, celebrity chefs is a thing. Um, chefs are are elevated. 
uh, to rock star status, um, you know, so it's a whole new world out there for culinary arts. <laughs> so it's not just slinging burgers at the at the diner, and that's a wonderful thing too. But you can you can uh, you can you can create a whole restaurant around what whatever your culinary history is, what your relationship to food is. Um, Gastro pubs are real. Uh, Brasseries are real. So uh, you can. You can, yeah, you can eat your way around the world. And New Haven, I think, is a is a wonderful place to launch a restaurant because this is a foodie town. This is very much a foodie town. And uh, we've watched uh, restaurants come and go over the years. And I've worked at some of them. So as a kid, uh, I worked at a couple of restaurants downtown when I was a young culinary student. Um, and it was uh, a good experience. And uh, I don't miss it and I don't cook for money anymore, but you know, there's that. So uh, I'm about to break. We're going to have station identification and whatever else is going on. And I'll be back at 1015. So uh, look for the fresh link when I talk to Chef Vincent. Hi, this is Babs Rawls-Ivy from New Haven, Connecticut. And you're listening to WNHHLP. 103.5 FM, streaming live at newhavenindependent.org. Heaven in strange times, I'll find my strength. Even when down, I'll stand. Do you love me? Don't belong. Sometimes I wish I wasn't born.
distant shores I've been waiting wanting more for the whole night and it ain't right I've been saying what's on my mind trying to explain what can't be defined and for so long it's been so strong suddenly it's clear now that I can hear The ones that I wrote Oh, these melodies Here are some memories And these love notes I found in an old coat Mean something new All because of you Some memories, these love notes 
found in an old coat Being something new All because of you Oh, well. 
people welcome back to the second hour of love babs love talk on babs rose ivy i'm delighted because i've got chef vincent Sharico in the house good morning chef now you gotta unmute yourself <laughs> i know that's not your thing you in the kitchen <laughs> I, 
Is that good? Yeah, that's good. How are you? Welcome to New Haven. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. Happy you know, to be here. Happy to be bring, in Connecticut. I'm so glad. What brings you here? Like, of all the places of your skills and talents, what brings you to New Haven? Good question. Um, so, you know, New York City, my whole life, growing up, cooking, working, COVID hit. My wife, who is not a city girl, decided we were leaving uh, New York City, <laughs> and 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 she's in charge, right? So we moved to uh, Westport. We moved to the Westport area during COVID about two years ago. The uh, the property that I'm in in New Haven, the gentleman who owns the building, um, I've had a long time relationship with him, and he loved eating in my restaurants in New York City. And years ago, tried to hit me up to get me to come up to New Haven and take the property. At the time, it just wasn't feasible, right? The distance, uh, me being occupied with my restaurants in the city. Um, and then we just touched base. Once I moved here a couple of years ago, we touched base. Once COVID was over, that was it. Um, I always, I was always in love with that property. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a stunning location. It's a fantastic property and it's fun to be in a new city. You know, it's, I've been in New York City my entire life. I've traveled, but I've only had restaurants in New York City, and I thought it'd, it'd be fun to, you know, um, try out a new city. And the property itself is fantastic. So as long as I don't screw it up, we should be good. <laughs> well, you know, that that property has a has a lot of history. Like it's in the Taft, and yeah. you know, I'm, I'm from New Haven, so I know the history of this place. And I've okay. I've I've been in that restaurant uh, lots of times on the different uh, uh, owners and different, different iterations, right? Yeah, different iterations. Um, Back in the day, was hot tomatoes. Right. Uh, it always had sort of a, a, a sometimes an Italian Mediterranean theme to it. Always hot tomatoes, okay. the 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 um, the palms, which was very, uh, uh, and then Roya, which um, was the last thing I think was there, and I think they're the ones that moved that bar out of the middle of the Dagon room and pushed right. it back. <laughs> right. <laughs> which what is are your, nice. what, what what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I'm glad that they did because it opened oh, yeah. up this it opened up the space, I think. Yeah, look, I mean, it, it seems it seems appropriate where it is right now. Yes. Let's 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 well it, it used to be in the that. middle of the room. Like you I know like, I, yeah. I still I still deal with the outline of the bar that is cemented <laughs> into the ground that I can't get rid of. <laughs> that you can't but get it's, rid of. It's 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 charm, right? There's some charm. So yes, you got high ceilings. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful physical space. Look, I mean, I come from New York City, right, where every square inch is, uh, you know, a million dollars, right? So uh, the idea that I can have a space like this that has these various, you know, parts to it, and I can utilize them differently and appeal to different um, uh, clients looking for different experiences was the key for this property, right? You know, the goal is to not just have a fine dining restaurant, it's to have a really cool cafe that's operating all day at the entrance, a really fun bar scene. And then the main dining area, about 50 seats to be the, the more fine dining area, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when you walked into the space, did you did you know what kind of restaurant you wanted to open? And you're like, let me find the space. Or do you walk into the space and say, oh, I immediately get a sense of what I want to do in here? I personally have done uh, the latter, which is, I walk into a space, I find a deal that I'm, I find a good deal. I find, a, you know, I, I get a good energy from a property and I then 
will develop a concept that I think fits into the, the that specific property, neighborhood, demographic, whatever the case is, right? And whatever whatever I can facilitate, right? Uh, the restaurant that I have in the West Village, uh, it's been document well documented. I signed the lease. I was a bit excited about being downtown for the first time after being on the Upper West for many years. I signed the lease. Didn't do enough due diligence to realize that I couldn't cook, I couldn't vent, I couldn't get a full liquor license, and I'm wow. and I have a and and I have a lease that's signed for a very expensive uh, rent figure, and here I am now trying to figure out what am I going to do with this space. Um, so that was that was quite a, you know, episode of about a year and a half trying to figure out what to do with a space where I can't vent, I can't ventilate right, so you can't can't ventilate, can't cook on gas. And can't get a full liquor license, you know. And so, from that was born a pretty cool restaurant, Course NYC, uh, mm -hmm. where where we cook on electric only. Uh, it's a food and wine pairing experience, and uh, it's been tremendously successful. So, you know, I'm proud of the fact that I've been able to adapt, you know, to the various situations. And and you know, I think you call on your I think the vast experiences I've had working all over the world with different chefs in different environments allows me to apply to a specific property, something that can be successful, you know? Mm. So, so when did you so. know you wanted to be a chef? Were you a little kid in your grandmother's kitchen cooking? Like, how did you, how did you come to, to cooking? And then how did you transition into cooking and creating a business out of it? Right. I, uh, long story short, I grew up with my grandmother, spent a lot of time with grandma. She was, you know, still to this day, my favorite human, you know, uh, I mean, you know, let's, my wife may disagree with that, <laughs> but I, I, look, I, I had an amazing relationship. I had, a, <laughs> I had an amazing relationship with my grandmother. Right. And so my grandmother would, would, I'd stay over her house more times than not. Uh, mm -hmm. escaping my crazy Italian dad who drove me nuts. Uh, and she would literally have a tomato. You know, th 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 these are not rich people we're talking about, right? She would have a tomato, a, some spaghetti, an egg. And the next thing you know, I have this amazing meal in front of me, right? So I, I, I suspect there was some inspiration from that. And then, you know, I just, when I was 13 or 14, literally, I wanted to cook. Um, really? I hated, yeah, I hated school. Hey, buddy. I hated school. Um, this is Waylon. <laughs> Hi, Waylon. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's okay. uh, that's my boy. Um, I just I, I really hated school. I didn't do well academically. It just wasn't my thing. I was always sort of a hands-on type kid. I thought I think. And when I was thirteen or fourteen, I wanted to be a chef, and I literally called New York City, all the cooking schools and said, hey, I'm 14 years old, but I want to come to your school. Can I? And they said, <laughs> and they said, no, absolutely not. You cannot come to our school <laughs> until you have a GED. So I went through the, I went through the motions of high school. Uh, didn't do very well, but got my GED. Uh, I didn't actually know. I graduated from high school, uh, barely, uh, had the diploma, had to break it to my dad, who is a very old fashioned Italian dude, who has his own business that I grew up in, which was a meat market, family meat market, which is still exists 56 years later, right? Even wow. after my dad's passing. So I grew up in that environment of food too, in this meat market, you know, working on the weekend with dad and my uncles and my cousins. But I had to break to my dad that I'm his only son, 
and I don't want to take over his business, right? And for an Italian pop who's an immigrant, that was a tough, tough go, right? So yeah. two, three years of him not talking to me, being upset. Yeah. Finally, <laughs> I was going to say, there must have been some, I, I can't talk to you right now, son, because it was breaking rough, my yeah. heart. Yeah. Yeah. So just about when I turned 17, 18, he finally caved in and said, all right, you know what? You want to be a chef? Let's just do it. So enrolled in school and just went after it, you know, and um, didn't love cooking school either, to be honest. Um, but went through the motions to get through it. And when I was about 19 and a half, I walked into uh, Aquavit. In oh, my NYC. goodness. Yeah. So uh, before Marcus was the chef, actually, um, mm -hmm. I walked into Aquavit. I was about 19 and a half. Uh, just saying, you know, back in that day, back in those days, you looked at the daily news for jobs. There was no Craigslist. There was no, you know, internet wasn't really a thing as much. And you would look at daily news. You would see a job posting and you'd literally walk in and say, hey, hi, you know. And uh, I got hired on the spot, which was a minor miracle, right? Because I didn't have much cooking experience. But you could do that in those days because I was a culinary student. So I remember... Okay. I remember, like, I interned at the Waldorf, right? So oh, I interned. Cool. At the, I was a young, I'm pretty much around the same age as you were, and 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 they just let you do it. <laughs> well, you know, look, like today, right? I mean, a young person walks through the door, your eyes light up because you're like, you know, high energy kid, low cost, right? You, you were not going to pay this person a lot, and you know, <laughs> they're either going to be, they're either going to last a week, or they're going to last, or this is going to be their thing, right? So. So I started there uh, and literally my first three months in a New York City restaurant for the first time in my life, Marcus Samuelson was right next to me cooking, right? So he and I were actually cooking together. He was a sous chef at the time, right? And, you know, it's well documented that about six months later, they gave him the reins uh, to be the chef at Aquavit in that beautiful historic building with, you know, the mm -hmm. Rockefeller building that had the waterfall on 54th Street. And uh, he became the chef. Two months later, we got three stars from the New York Times, Ruth Reichel, and all hell broke loose. I mean, we went from doing 30, 40 dinners to 175 dinners with this small team in a small kitchen. The restaurant itself was beautiful, but the kitchen was very small, right? Um, but we went from doing 30, 40 covers to 170 covers a night for like six months, right? So that was the real test, you know? Do you really want to do this? Is this what you want to do? And and I just loved it. You know, I I... I I love the pressure. I love the intensity. It was just my thing. So yeah, you have to you know, love the pressure. Yeah, you know, you have to, you know, timing and so forth. You you have to you have to like the adrenaline, you know. And uh, I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I don't like fast cars. I don't like to fly, which is weird because typically guys like me like that kind of stuff. <laughs> I don't. I'm not. I'm not into you know high adrenaline like jumping off building type stuff, but. Roller coasters, I don't do, but but in the kitchen, that adrenaline is what what I love, you know. And so, yeah, it just started there, you know. And um, Marcus was a huge mentor for me because uh, I was a young kid, you know, really mm -hmm. didn't know my, you know, still finding my way, right? I was a New York City kid. I sort of, you know, I wouldn't say I was a bad kid, but you know, I was a New York City kid with sort of a New York City attitude, you know. And mm -hmm. it took several mentors to, uh, you know. <laughs> to beat me down to the, to the, to get to the place where I was when I was about 30, you know, I mean, my twenties, I spent Marcus Samuelson, Rocco Despirito, Daniel Baloud, Jean-Georges, all these guys, right. 
working in France, working in Sweden, working in Spain. And, you know, you decide, hey, if you really want this, um, you look at these guys who are successful and you you sort of emulate them. You know, I mean, I was lucky. I was lucky with with my mentors, Um, all, you know, like all very serious, very, very passionate. Um, You know, I don't to this day, I don't drink in my own restaurants. You know, it's so there's a certain discipline that I picked up at a very young age from these from these guys, these mentors mm-hmm. of mine. And, uh, you know, it's it served me pretty well. So so sorry for the you... long answer. <laughs> no, this this is great. I mean, listen, this is a good answer. Yeah. So when did you know you wanted to open a restaurant? Did you always want your own restaurant or did so, that dream come later? Great question. Right. And this is like the this is the million dollar question for guys like me and chefs like me. Right. I mean. You go from a kid from Brooklyn, 19, trying to cook, uh, trying to find my way to, you know, by the time I was 27, 28, um, I had taken a chef job at 27, I think I was, my first like executive chef job. It was a restaurant on 57th Street. And look, it wasn't a, it was more of like a nightclub-y kind of place, but they gave me an opportunity to be the head guy, right? Which is kind of what you're after, after working for all these great mentors, you want to kind of do your own thing, you know, creatively, et cetera. And um, they gave me an opportunity. Again, it wasn't a food first restaurant, but so Marcus and all the guys were like, what are you doing this place? <laughs> you know, uh, but I said, hey, it's my decision and I'm going for it. So, but what, what you realize when you are a chef working with ownership, it is a very difficult uh, dynamic, right? Because as a chef, especially a young chef working in the restaurants that I worked, for me, it's all about food, right? I don't care about the bottom line. It's not, I mean, at that point in your career, it's not about bottom line. It's about becoming this, you know, well-known chef, right? And whatever means necessary. So costs are not really something you think about, you know? And obviously that dynamic with an owner who's there to, to, to get a bottom line and to sustain his business, which I understand now better, um, you know, at that point is when you realize, okay, you know, I can't creatively wake up every day and cook food in conjunction with an owner who wants to make money, I need to wake up every day, figure out a formula to cook the food that I want to cook, but also sustain a business, right? Mm. And I knew right there, 26, 27, that I needed my own restaurant. And otherwise I wouldn't, I would not continue to do what I was doing, you know, because I create the creative aspect, the passionate part of it was what dominates, right? And that's what dominates most chefs. And if you're lucky enough to find a formula where you can run a successful business, wake up every day and and live your creative dream. I mean, what's better than that, right? So for anyone, not only chefs. So I went on this mad, massive tear for two or three years, not knowing a thing about real estate in New York City, looking at restaurant, you know, I'm, I'm like looking at restaurant properties that in no shape or way, or no shape, no way, shape or form I could afford or even had the means to do it. But I would just go look and educate myself on what it's like to lease a store, you know, and I remember dragging around the, you know, the real estate brokers and they're looking at me like this pretty young guy, like, you know, so you have investors you have. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm all set, <laughs> you know, but one thing led to one thing led to another. And I found this, you know, I through this, you know, pursuit, I found this location on the Upper West Side, Manhattan, 77th Street. It was a fast food place that had a beer and wine license. Hmm. Um, I walked in one day and I knew they weren't doing well. I happened to be living there at the time on the Upper West. 
And I walked in, I, I knew they weren't doing well. And I met the owner and said, hey, look, you know, here's who I am. Here's my resume. I don't have a lot of money, but if you want to partner with me, um, I'll take on this store. I'll turn this business around. I'll make it a restaurant. Um, and, you know, you can be my partner. Reluctantly, after three, four months, five months of, you know, sort of going back and forth with this gentleman, he agreed. You know, he didn't really have much to lose. He didn't have much to lose, to be honest. You know, the business wasn't doing well. He had a lot of debt. So I proceeded to make the worst deal in the history of, of deals. <laughs> because, you know, at that point in your life, you're so you're so enamored with having your own restaurant and doing your thing that mm -hmm. you'll do whatever it takes. And it's New York would City, you, right? Would you do it all again that way? Like, you know so much now. I would do, I would do it all. I, I mean... Look, would I would I make a better financial deal? <laughs> sure. But the idea that I was, you know, 28, 29 years old with my own my own little restaurant that I built myself um, and I had to figure it out. Right. I didn't have investors. I didn't have partners. It was just me. Right. Um, uh, both on the creative side, but also on the economic side. So I don't think there would have been I don't think there's any better route, you know, uh, to have gone to really learn how to balance, like I said, the key thing is balancing the chefdom with the business person, right? And that's where a lot of folks that came up like me, who are very passionate about food and have a very one-track mind have failed, right? They've, they've tried to open restaurants, but they can't balance the idea of, okay, how do I make amazing food, but also sustain a business, you know? And that balance is, is key. So my restaurants- so How many restaurants do you have now? Uh, I have one in the city and uh, I had- couple of properties in the city. The first restaurant that I opened on the Upper West, which I was describing, uh, went 16 years. So that in itself was, you know, was pretty awesome, right? I mean, I yeah, didn't- Yeah, because that's a long time for a restaurant, I think. Especially for my first one, you know, and being a kid, you know, so that sort of set, you know, that gives you the confidence and the, and the you know, and the know-how and so forth. Uh, I then opened uh, Course NYC down in West Village in 2016. I had a property in Industry City in Brooklyn, which is this huge uh, Chelsea Market spinoff. Um, I did something there for about five years. Uh, they changed plans during COVID, so I I stopped uh, you know operating there. But and then Vi on the Upper West Side, which was my first love, my first restaurant, my first everything. Where to this day, all my clients are still great friends of mine. I closed that just before the pandemic. You know, the lease was ending. The landlord, typical New York City landlord, would didn't want to negotiate, and I just said, you know what? Let me. I just gave it up. You know, it was hard. It was a hard thing because that was my love, right? My first restaurant, mm -hmm. the Upper West Side, the Upper West Side, my relationship with folks. But at the end of the day, at that point, I realized, you know what? It, it, you know, the rents are high, and it's it's a, it's a challenge, right? And the landlord was would just not budge. I had been there. I had been with him for eleven years. Paid wow. A, paid a ton of rent. <laughs> and I went to him and said, I went to him and I said, Hey, you know, um, and it's a small restaurant, right? You're talking 1200 square feet. I'm paying 23, 24,000 a month in total, right? Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. Be yeah. Yeah. Between rents and tax and water, I was paying 23, 24,000 a month. And so I went to him. I'll never forget this. We had a meeting and I said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of reviving the place a little bit. You know, it, it was old, right? I had been there a while wanted to make some changes, cosmetic changes, and re-energize re the concept a little bit. At this time, I had my downtown restaurants were already open. 
Um, and he basically rejected everything I had to offer. You know, I said, hey, give, I just wanted two months free in rent. I wanted the summer free, renovate the place, improve his property, right? Because I'm just a leaseholder. And at, on the other side of that two months free, I would have signed a brand new 10-year lease, right? So he'd lock me in and he wouldn't give me the two months free. Wow. So, which was a crazy decision on his part. But I think I think he didn't think that I would leave, right? So I called okay. his bluff and I, I called his bluff and I said, I'm done. And I left and started focusing on the West Village property, which I have still, and uh, the Brooklyn property. So I currently have West Village, uh, Course NYC. It's on its uh, seventh, what is it? No, about 50 year now, 60 year, 60 year. Um, I have, a, I actually signed a lease in Norwalk for another restaurant in Connecticut. So what um, kind of food are we talking? I mean, is every restaurant different food wise or does it all have some connecting uh, uh, flavors, food properties? Like, is it all very different? Like if I walk into one, is it, is it Japanese? Is it, or is it fusion? Italian. You know, that's a, that's it? a good that's a good question. A lot of people a lot of people ask that. It's a, it's really a hard it's actually a hard question to answer. They're not so the concepts themselves, the names are not connected in any way, right? Um, again, it's it's about adapting to the property itself, mm-hmm. the demographic around you, the town you're in, and you know, I'm still learning New Haven, right? I mean, I'm it's it's very new for me. So it's a very food town. It's a very food yeah yeah. City. I mean. Uh, you know, I'm right in the, the downtown area, which has some great <laughs> restaurants and a great vibe, right? Um, but to answer your question, you know, it's 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 I draw inspiration from all my experiences working in Japanese restaurants, working in three-star Michelin restaurants, working in French restaurants, working with hyper-creative people like Marcus and Rocco Despirito. And you know, you you look at a property, you study it, and you 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 evaluate. You know, it's, it's also execution is a big part of it, right? You know, it's it's not just wake up today and this is the dream dish that I want to do. It's how do I get my people to be able to execute that dish on the level that I need? So there's a lot of different layers to it, you know. Um, mm. Chefs chefs are, you know, have to be pretty calculated to be successful and, and very, very strategic. And there's a lot that goes into, you know, a successful restaurant. Look, there's many, many restaurants out there that are successful. And so people sometimes overlook how difficult it could be. But to be on a certain level that I would like to be on and execute every day on a certain level, it's 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 an interesting challenge. But, you know, to answer your question, look, I, I love I love the simplicity of Japanese cooking. Uh, I love the flavors. I love, like I said, the simplicity of it, the freshness of it. But I'm also Italian and Mediterranean and, and you know, that's my heritage. And I sort of, so it's, you know, you'll find uh hamachi and polenta on the same menu, you know? So it's not fusion, right? Fusion would be the wrong word because fusion would mean that you're combining these flavors on the same plate that I tend to not do. I tend to treat the hamachi the way it's supposed to be treated and the polenta in a way that it's supposed to be treated. Right. So, so the client can sort of decide, Hey, I feel like I want to go lighter Japanesey today, or I want to go Italian and and you know polenta with truffle and egg and cheese, you know that kind of thing. So, you know each dish has its own identity, and yeah, I'm sorry, it's a long, it's a, it's no, a tough question not. to answer. So, you know? so do you do you chase the Michelin star? Do you? I mean, is that a is that a dream that every chef 
has for their restaurant to chase that Michelin award? You know, I'm not, I, you know it's it's a good question. I don't. I'm not sure how to answer that one in the in the sense in in terms of what guys are after. I think. Look, Michelin can go both ways, right? I mean, Michelin, you get a Michelin star, you could scare off a lot of people. Uh, you know, so so there's there's that way of looking at it, right? I mean, um, some folks, look, my restaurant in the city, Course NYC, you know, do clients come there in, day in and day out and say, why don't you have a Michelin star? Why don't you have a Michelin star? And I say, look, as long as you think I should have a Michelin star and you're coming back, that's all I care about. That That is my Michelin star, right? Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. that's what it's about, right? So, yes, to be honest with you, what a Michelin star or stars would do, it just, it 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 is a marketing opportunity, in my opinion, right? Mm. It's not going to make me feel any better that, about what I do because the clients that come in day in and day out and write good reviews and go out of their way to, to tell us, hey, this was a really special experience. We really appreciate you. Um, that's what's important, right? The Michelin star or, you know, anything like that is, is great because it's a marketing opportunity. You know, I mean, you have tourists coming to New York City, for example. What are the Michelin star restaurants, you know, uh, things like that, right? So is it something that I would appreciate? Sure. Is it something that I'm after? Not really. You know, it's, I've, my restaurants, people know me in the city. The writers know me, but I've never been, I've always been a little bit under the radar. You know, I've always been like, Mostly because I'm in my restaurants cooking, right? And you know, it's rare that I do stuff like this. You know, in, in my history, it's it's you know, I'll have people call me, hey, do you want to be the you know, do this appearance or do that? And I'm like, I need to work, you know. So, <laughs> so I mean, that's the reality, right? And so, yes, maybe I missed some opportunities to be a you know, a TV star chef, but well, you're you know, pretty damn close. I mean, well, you're pretty close. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that just means you just haven't food, stepped into network, that role. But yeah, you're food close. network hasn't food network hasn't called yet. But oh, they probably will. <laughs> so, so you know, with the ever changing palates and with the emergence of allergies and and people and vegans and 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 people who are all kinds of things, and I'm I'm yep. one of these people who has a severe dairy allergy, and so I'm okay. always you know challenging yep. restaurants to make things that are not dairy. Right. Um, do you have do you do you adjust to that kind of flexibility in in your restaurants you know uh with the with the the changing palates and diets of folks well look it's going to be for me it's going to be very specific to the property right i mean course nyc in the city is full-on full spontaneous fully spontaneous experience you have no idea you you have no idea what's coming to you even when you're sitting there for dinner so in new york city at Course NYC, you've committed to $200 per person, food and wine, two and a half hours. That's all we're giving you. We don't give you anything else. <laughs> and I trust me, it's it. And that's that, a ride. <laughs> talk, talk about balance. Talk about balancing chef and business person. Talk about that balance in that restaurant is the ultimate challenge for that because you know how many people call and say, "Hey, I'm coming in tonight with six people." Uh, you know, we're really excited about your experience, but we have a few people who want to know what the menu is. And we'll say, I'm sorry, it's just not, we can't give it to you. And they'll cancel. They'll literally cancel their reservation. Well, can they say this person can't have this? Does that help? Like We, we, we are fully equipped in real time to deal with any allergies, okay. vegan, 
not allergies, but like dietary restrictions, right? Mm -hmm. And we obviously, that's our selling point. Hey, we're a spontaneous tasting menu, but if you're vegan, if you're vegetarian, if you're, you know, have allergies, we will accommodate you. Like we're, we're not out here saying, hey, screw, there's restaurants. You look at some restaurants in the city that are tasting menu on their website in bold, they say, do not accommodate vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, like they literally- oh, I, I, I know. <laughs> right. And, you know, I'm saying, wait a second, that, you know, I mean, look, more power to them, right? If they can fill their restaurants, alienating all these people, good for them. But um, no, look, to answer your question, I think in, in, a, in a traditional restaurant like New Haven, the Luke, you basically gear toward, you know, you would, you would, a chef doesn't want to take a dish that he's created and tear it apart, right? Mm. He doesn't want to say, he doesn't want to do, like, I don't want to do a polenta dish with mushroom and truffle without mushroom or without cheese or without you know what i mean but what you'll do if your if your hospitality instincts are in the right place as a chef which i believe mine aren't some chefs don't get that is you'll come out and you'll have a chat and say hey look here's the dish that i recommend for you based on your restrictions that you'll that i've created that you'll be satisfied by you know that doesn't need manipulation right mm. and in some cases if you want something manipulated like like if you really want the white asparagus Without the cheese, of course, we're going to give it to you, right? We're going to serve it to you. I mean, and that's that's the kind of stuff you learn. I mean, Danielle Baloud, one of my mentors, the guy I worked for, was like, you know, he's the ultimate chef, right? I mean, he's one of the top chefs yeah. in the world. And, you know, his mantra was hospitality first, right? I'm a hospitality host first, chef second. If a client wants to come in here and tell me, tear my dish apart into three pieces, but that's what they want and that'll make them happy you do it and so like i said yeah you know you draw on these things right i mean when you have folks like that that you've worked for that are that display that sort of flexibility you know and then you have your own business you know you'd be you'd be silly not to you know learn from those examples you know and so yeah you know like i said you know you'll try to gear i i would my personal preference would be to hey this dish is perfect for you. Stay away from that dish, you know, because okay. if I take the cheese off this dish, it's not going to be as good, you know. Okay. Um, oh. But yeah, there's vegan, there's vegan offerings now. Um, you know, I tend to cook. I tend to cook on the lighter side to begin with. I don't use a lot of dairy. I don't use a lot of butter, you know, except for a handful of dishes that that's what the dish is about. Mm. Um, you know, that's what I like about Japanese cooking, right? When was the last time you went to a Japanese restaurant and had cream and cheese? You know, just, it's just not what they do. Right. Yeah. So, so the ability to like embrace that and, and the freshness and the, you know, the, 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 the lack of dairy butter, uh, the ability to create great flavor without, you know, doing it different than what the French style would be, you know, French cooking, yes. you know, classic French cooking is about butter, butter, cream, you know, it's all the Although, bad things for you. When I was in Paris, Chef Vincent, I ate vegan every day because they have tons and tons of vegan restaurants Our Paris, yeah. and, and patisseries, right? So yeah, I sure. could get a croissant and I could get chocolate and I could get all the things. Well, at least, at, least they, at least they told you it was vegan. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about the name. What What is the Luke? What is, what's the... Tell me the tell me about that before I let so, you go. Oh yeah, that's another great question because I, I've been in what we've we've been doing business for about a month now. And uh three times a day a client will say, Is you are you Luke? 
you know, and without 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 being rude, I say it's the Luke, not Luke's, right? So that should tell you something. Um, but but the point is, uh, yeah, look, it's hard to name a restaurant, right? Um, in this particular property, for the first time, I, I have a significant partner who you know was the owner of the building, and he's he's an equal partner with me at least, right? And so I haven't had that before. You know, I've been able to sort of wake up every day and say, this is what I'm going to do. Right. Um, and, and it's, and naming a restaurant's already difficult, but then when you have other folks chiming in, it amplifies the difficulty. Right. Um, so I had 20 names before the loop, to be honest with you. And it, you know, you wind up, we wound up at the Luke, uh, because that was a suggestion. You know, we, we, we sort of sent out a poll to friends of ours and said, Hey, here's 20 names you know, vote on them. And we literally sent this out. My a friend of mine who worked for Nielsen sent out this thing and we had like a hundred people vote on which name do you like the best? And the French version of Luke was the winner, L-U-C, mm. which I, which I kind of liked, right? It's a little sexy. And my partner who is a French guy, French Moroccan <laughs> said, no, 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 no. That's not good for the, for an American uh for americans i said what do you mean like they'll get it he said well they won't be able to pronounce it said, okay man so what so what do you want to call it so what do you want to do and he said well let's call it the luke like l-u-k-e the american version and i thought to myself and i thought that's not very sexy you know but but the reason why i agreed to it and what i like about it is that it it and for me it invokes like a whimsy, right? It, 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 it can be, the Luke can be like a cocktail bar on the Lower East Side. Yeah. You know, so it, 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 it's a fun name, right? And, and that's why I sort of agree to it. But, you know, these names are born from, you know, they, they, there's not much rhyme or reason to when you name a restaurant, even though some people may say there is, you know, like <laughs> my first restaurant was Vibe. <clears throat> that had no significance to me, but I knew I wanted an Italian, I, I knew I wanted an Italian name. And I knew I wanted it to be one syllable, right? An Italian name that is only one that's easy for Americans to pronounce, right? Mm. And so Luke is the same thing, you know? It's not long. It's Luke. Boom. You know, hey, no, let's Luke. go to the Yeah. Like hey, it. let's go. Let's go to the Luke. You know, it's. Well, I'm coming for dinner soon. So. Yes. See what you could whip up for me. So are you vegan? I, I am vegan-ish because I have a severe dairy allergy. So, I mean, I eat meat. Pescatarian? Uh, uh, it's just easier for me to say I'm vegan when okay, I go and places adjust. and then adjust because uh, okay. restaurants but you eat, you eat you eat you eat meat meat and fish. Yes, I do. Okay, yes, you're do. one of those. You're one of those. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, so, so I appreciate your time, Chef. This was a yeah. great conversation. I a lot of fun. I appreciate you, and uh, I look forward to having you on that block. And uh, having another place to eat, so yeah, yeah, it's going to be a fun, it's going to be a fun ride. I'm excited to be there, you know, and uh, excited to hang out with people like you. And you know, obviously, we need to spend some time together. So you have to come to the restaurant. I'm coming. Welcome to New Haven. Because <laughs> I have to see if I can, I have to see if I can satisfy your culinary uh, needs, right? That's that right. Goes. And yeah. you know, I'm a former chef, so you know, I'm yes, picky too. <laughs> yeah. So right. thank you for your time this morning, and. Happy cooking to you and welcome you. to New Haven. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Have a great day. All right, Harry, we are on our way out. Thank you so much. Y'all have a good week, weekend. I'll be back uh, on Monday. 
with some new folks to talk to. Uh, and uh, hopefully I'll s- skip into the Luke sometime soon and uh, eat. So y'all be good and I'll see y'all soon. All right, Harry, play us out. Thank you so much. Bye, Chef. Bye.